Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield. I'm recording this on Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. You can visit us online at thechristianfaith.org. And if you'd like to connect with us, if you have questions or comments about the program or about the Christian life and faith in general, you can send us an email at notes at thechristianfaith.org. And again, if you would uh, like to sign up to receive our emails, you can also do that at the website, thechristianfaith.org. Just click on the subscribe link and enter your email there. We usually send out two or three emails a week on the Christian life and faith. So this week, uh, I want to continue dealing with this matter of amillennialism. I, I just feel that it so much needs to be dealt with in this these days because it's really quite a pernicious teaching and uh, is really ill-affecting the saints. It seems like more so in these days. It's having more of an impact upon Bible-believing Christians. Of course, it's always been very firmly entrenched uh, in Christianity in general, but more on, in the mainline and in the... Uh, uh, Catholic churches, not so much among evangelical and Bible-believing Christians, but recently it seems like it's making headway even among uh, Bible-believing Christians, and that's why I feel there's just a real need to deal with this matter uh, in a pretty forceful way. But as I said last week, hopefully as we do that, uh, we'll have a much better understanding of uh, prophetic truth ourselves. And I have to say getting into this has been very helpful to me in that regard personally. So I'm hoping it will be to you also, number one. And number two, that it will also give us a better idea in general of how we need to come to the Scriptures, how we should view the Scriptures and uh, use the Scriptures and trust and believe in the Scriptures. So hopefully it will have also a very positive result, not just the dealing with uh, amillennialism and the false teaching there in a negative way, but also have the positive result of showing us how to come to the Scriptures. But in this program, we're going to be bouncing around a, a, a pretty good amount. Uh, one thing I should say up front is uh, I'm not planning on getting into Revelation 20 in this program after all. Uh, I just realized as, uh, the more I got into this, there was still too much to cover before we get into that topic. So again, probably as the Lord uh, allows and as the Lord leads, that will be next week. This week, I just have a number of other points to, to cover before that. Uh, there's some more specific points about amillennialism that, uh, and its teaching that I want to deal with. I want to get into uh, briefly into the matter of the 70 weeks also, and uh, because that's a major point of contention between uh, amillennial and premillennial schools of uh, Bible teaching. Um, I have some other things that I, I touched on last week that I feel I need to say a little bit more about. Another thing I do want to do this week, uh, I mentioned last week the uh, qu there's a quote from G.H. Pember about the Jews returning to the good land that is very, very, uh, uh, it's quite striking when you read it, when you realize he, he said these things uh, around 1887. Very striking quote to read. So I did think, since I mentioned that last week, that I should probably read that this week. But I wanted to begin the program with something of a, of a devotional, you could say, because I understand uh, these theological questions are not easy to get into and to deal with something um, like our millennialism. It's, it's, it's not easy, uh, even though, as I say, it's been very profitable for me. It's not easy. Uh, and so I, I thought it might be good just to 
come more directly to the Lord to begin the program, and then we can kind of recalibrate ourselves and continue from there. And there was a point that touched me uh, this past week. Uh, I just uh, noticed something. It really spoke to me, and so I wanted to pass that along to you. And I should say that I sent this out as an email entitled The Bread of God's Purpose. Uh, Yesterday, I think it was. And so uh, I'll link to that in the program notes below. So you can also read the note on the website if you'd like to do that. But as I mentioned in the email, you know, if you want to find out about God's purpose, the, the book of the Bible that talks most specifically about what is God's purpose is the book of Ephesians, as, as many people recognize. And it speaks specifically and explicitly of the purpose. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, It says, we were predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'm reading here in the New King James Version. That's Ephesians 1.11. In Ephesians 3.10 and 11, it says, um, um, we're starting with verse 9. God created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there you see this this unique phrase in the Bible, this the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what touched me about that was I was looking up to, in, in Hebrews. Um, you find the same word where you don't where you wouldn't expect to find it. Let me read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And the writer of Hebrews here is talking about the tabernacle. And he says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And again, this is the New King James. It uses the term showbread to describe the bread that was in the sanctuary. Uh, Other places call it the sacred bread. I think that's the New American Standard. Other versions would say the bread of the presence. But what's striking is, if if you use the the NASB where it says sacred bread, that word there for sacred is the same word that's used in Ephesians for purpose. Uh, The Greek word is prosthesis. Prosthesis. That's the Greek word, and it's the same word for purpose that you find in Ephesians. So you could literally translate this here as the bread of the purpose. Well, why is that? It's because the way God carries out his purpose is by imparting himself into us as life. And the way we receive him as life is by taking him in as our bread, as our daily bread, as our food. And you see this all throughout the Bible that God wants to be man's food. But I was so struck to see that it's the same, that that Greek word for purpose is the same word here as in Ephesians, because it really shows the purpose, the way God carries out his purpose is by giving us uh, himself as the bread for us to eat. And of course, Jesus, uh, in John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, I am the bread of life. Then a few verses later, John 6, 57, he says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, even he shall live because of me. Do you want to live because of Christ? Do you really want to enter into God's purpose? 
then you need to be one who learns to feed upon Christ as your living bread. Because that's the bread of the purpose. That's the bread that enables us to fulfill God's purpose. Whenever we receive Christ into us as our life by partaking of him as our spiritual food, we're fulfilling God's divine purpose. Praise the Lord for that. Of course, the way we do that, we open to the Lord in prayer. We come to him in his word. We touch him in his word. We should have a deep sense whenever we do that. I'm just touching God's purpose because he's imparting something of his divine life into my being. Now God's purpose is being fulfilled because I'm partaking of the bread of the purpose. And praise the Lord, Christ is the real bread of the purpose. And so I hope all the believers, so many believers, would just have an exercise before the Lord in a desire to enter into him in a deeper way to really experience him as the living bread, the bread of the purpose, so they can really enter into God's purpose in a genuine and a deeper way. Praise the Lord for that. Now, I also want to read a quote from Pember that I mentioned last week, because as I said then, the premillennial Bible teachers had been expecting and predicting the Jews' return to Palestine and the reformation of the Jewish nation for many decades, um, not quite a century, maybe 75 years or so before that happened, because they knew for biblical prophecy to be fulfilled, the Jews had to be in the good land and eventually in, even in possession of Jerusalem. And so they, they were predicting that. Uh, and this is a, uh, a quote from Pember, as I say, that's very, uh, it's just uh, tragic almost, because he's saying that the, the negative circumstances uh, in Germany would force many Jews to return. Now, this was written in 1887. That's what makes it so gripping, because he had no idea just how terrible the situation would become. Uh, and, he, and he makes another a number of predictions viewing the current political situation about his time. Some are not turned out not to be accurate. Some maybe were. But this is one which is, the way it was fulfilled was much more terrible, as I say, than he ever could have imagined. Uh, I'm looking at volume one of his Great Prophecy series at page 263. And he's talking about how uh, the situation in Russia had already caused many Jews at that time to begin to uh, flee that country. And he says, uh, uh, Many families have arrived in Palestine to the great increase of the Hebrew population. Others escaped to America, where they found the people strangely unwilling to receive them. Still larger numbers have, point, have, have poured into Germany. Now listen to what he says about this. In the latter country, however, they find no ease neither rest for the sole of their foot, but seem likely to be driven on to seek another home and possibly even to cause the departure of their brethren who had previously settled there. For within the last few years, the ancient hatred of the Jews has been revived in Germany, their wonderful prosperity and rapidly increasing power having excited jealousy and prejudice and induced a persuasion that many of the ills of the country are to be referred to their presence in it. Well, of course, he had no idea, again, this was written in 1887, that uh, just in a few decades hence, a very evil uh, worker from Austria would indeed fan that hatred into a flame and blame the Jews for the problems in Germany. And how many would die as a result of that, you know, he could only imagine. 
And a few pages later, on page 268, he goes on, But the jealousy and hatred of those among whom they sojourn will be God's means of driving them back to the place where he will deal with them, just as, in the days of old, their hard bondage made them glad to leave the flesh pots of Egypt and to turn their faces toward Canaan. So it's really so. But again, he simply could never have imagined just how terrible the situation would be. So to read that today, looking back, to me is very, very uh, moving. Uh, And to see just the terrible manner in which that prediction was fulfilled. So now I want to come again to the amillennial question. And the first matter I want to consider uh, regarding this is, is the question of why does it matter? Why do you have to deal with amillennialism? Uh, and for one thing, you know, like I said, someone might say to me uh, in, in the program last week, you said we shouldn't study theology. It's not healthy. And, and secondly, you hate arguing. So here you are. You're getting into theology and you're arguing. Well, okay, Uh, point taken. Uh, So I I have to explain myself a little bit. That uh, no, yes, I strongly say again, the study of theology as an end end in itself is not healthy to any Christian. It's never going to help you spiritually. Uh, But first of all, sometimes you just have to deal with it. When you see an evil teaching like this, you just don't have any choice. You have to to deal with it. And secondly. Uh, when you uh, do touch theology, if you touch it in the right way, where it makes you look at the scripture in a different way than you did before, and it helps you consider questions you haven't really considered before, so that it's helping you come to the scripture, not to study theology itself, but to come to the scripture, then it can be positive. As long as you don't dwell on it too much, it can have a positive effect. And I, as I say, as I've been getting in, into uh, amillennialism more in these past few weeks. Uh, for that reason, it has been helpful to me. Uh, obviously, I'm, I don't uh, uh, appreciate amillennialism itself, but I've been forced to consider some of these questions a little more deeper way than I had before, so that has been helpful. But I, I still don't recommend studying theology as an end in itself. And and I still say, yes, I hate arguing. To me, to argue for the sake of argument is just... Uh, uh, it's like torture. I can't. I can't even bear it. In this, the New Testament strongly condemns it. And I mentioned last week uh, Paul's word to Timothy in First Timothy, uh, chapter six, uh, verse three. He talks about uh, those who teach different things. And then in verse four, he goes on. He talks about ones who are blinded with pride, understanding nothing, but they're diseased with questionings and contentions of words, out of which come strife, envy, slanders, and evil suspicions, perpetual wranglings of men corrupted in mind and deprived of the truth, supposing godliness to be a means of gain. I'll, I'll just add a couple points. Uh, one is this quote that I read last week, which, which is so good. It's really an indictment of uh, those who get uh, caught up in these theological arguments. Uh, this is from Matthew Pfaff, and uh, he made this statement about uh, 1720, and I'll I'll link to this because it's such a good quote. I'll link to this in the uh, program notes. He said, If the apostles should return to earth and be called to professors' chairs, they would evince a woeful ignorance concerning the things which are the subjects of strife among the theologians. Let me read that again. 
If the apostles should return to earth and be called to the professor's chairs, they would evince a woeful ignorance concerning the things which are the subjects of strife among the theologians. And he was a pietist, and, and you know, he was talking about how the German professors at that time had these constant battles over their theology. But they were careless about their spiritual life. No care for their spiritual life. And so often, the ones who get involved and caught up in theology and these arguments are, are just this way. It's just something to argue over, and it's, it's worthless. And if, if it wouldn't mean anything to the apostles, as this author is saying, this writer, he's uh, quoted by Pember, and I'll put the citation there too. Uh, if it doesn't mean anything to the apostles, it shouldn't mean anything to us either. We really have to be careful about that. Then uh, on a lighter note, I also, as I was considering this, I was just reminded of a cartoon I saw years ago in the, one of the Christian magazines. And to be honest, very little of, of spiritual value in any of these magazines. But this cartoon was pretty good. I appreciated it. So uh, this guy's uh, on the sidewalk and he's looking in this department store window and there's a TV playing. And uh, on the TV, there's a news flash. And the announcer is saying, uh, thousands missing as empty cars crash on highway. And uh, the caption to the cartoon says, John, a pre-tribber, had mixed reactions to the news. <laughs> and I've always gotten quite a kick out of that because it's a, he, could, he was so happy. He had mixed reactions. On the one hand, he was so happy. He was right. He was right. It was a pre-tribulation rapture. Everybody's gone. And so he won the argument. And on the other hand, well... He didn't get raptured. <laughs> so that was his mixed reaction. And I just think it did a good job of kind of summing up in a concise way sometimes how people approach these debates because there's no, no reality involved. It's just something to argue over. Uh, it's, but in reality, it shouldn't just be something to argue over. It's for us to find out what is the truth and to help us order our life, our Christian life, in such a way to help us follow the Lord. But again, arguing itself for the sake of argument is just it's it's just not a healthy practice to indulge in. Now, as for amillennialism itself and the teaching itself, I'm just going to say a couple of general points here about why it is so evil, and I'll develop develop some of this more later on in the program. But I want to stress again, amillennialism deprives Christians of the Bible. It really does. They claim to believe the Bible. But they don't really believe it. They, they refuse to accept all that the prophets have spoken. And it's quite significant that early on in the development of the amillennial teaching, uh, some of the main ones, the way they developed their teaching was by saying revelation shouldn't be a part of the Bible. Uh, and as I say, I'll, I'll say more about that later on. Uh, but that's how they dealt with Revelation chapter 20. At least they were honest about it. They said, we just don't think that's part of the scripture. The amillennial teachers today aren't honest about it. They don't believe it. They claim they do. They say, well, it's spiritual. But they're doing the same thing. They're writing it out of the Bible. And they write out of the Bible all the Old Testament prophecies and all the promises to Israel. They make it seem like you can't trust God's promises. You can't trust his prophecies. that They're going to be fulfilled. You have no idea. If you take the way of amillennialism, you'll never know how firm God's promises are and how real the prophecies are. And you'll never be uh, in awe of just how accurate biblical prophecy has always proven to be, and so you can trust in the future it will be just as accurate. You get deprived of all of that if you take the way of amillennialism. 
that's why it's so important to deal with this evil teaching, uh, first of all. Now, as I, uh, I was talking with one brother about this uh, this week, he made a very good point, uh, which is that really the divide between premillennialism and amillennialism is ba- the basic divide among all of Christianity today. I mean, on one side you have uh, basically the Catholic Church, you have the Reformed Churches, the mainline denominations, all those groups. They're all amillennial. They always have been. On the other side, you have the Bible-believing Christians and the evangelicals who are premillennial in their theology. And uh, and that's really true. There's a big, big divide there between those two sides. It's basically how do you view the end times and what is your view of the end times and of the millennial kingdom. And I appreciate that. And that reminded me uh, of something, again, this, in, this is in the writings of G.H. Pember, uh, and I, I refer to him a lot because, as I say, as I've been getting into prophecy these last few years, these writings have been very, very helpful to me. He's, he's really unique in his uh, grasp of biblical prophecy, I feel. Uh, again, I don't always agree with what he has to say, but so good, so good in so many ways. And so he had a statement. Uh, he's talking about the book of Revelation. This is in volume four of his uh series on prophecy. It's uh, on page 447 is where it starts. Uh, And he quotes this one man, Isaac Taylor, refers to Isaac Taylor, who said, God will ultimately use the book of Revelation for the purpose of separating those who are truly his from mere professors. Those who are truly his own from mere professors. He's going to do that by means of the book of Revelation. And you really see that today. The real believers take a very uh, fundamental and a literal view of the book of Revelation, the mere professors say, well, it's spiritual. Uh, you can't really take it in such a literal way. You really see that divide. And then Pember goes on on the next page. He says, indeed, even the past history of Protestantism has repeatedly shown that a general knowledge of Scripture without a spiritual apprehension of the, the apocalypse, what we call the book of Revelation, is insufficient to check the gradual inroads of worldliness and unbelief or to detect and meet the stealthy approaches of a pagan Catholicism. And it's really so. He's talking there about the history of the mainline denominations. They all lost their testimony. They all lost their testimony to Christ because they didn't have a firm grasp of biblical prophecy and specifically of the book of Revelation. I mentioned last week, 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10, where Paul talks about the believers and how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to await his son from heaven. You have to have all three to have a solid uh, foundation for your Christian life. We turn to God from idols, one. Number two, you serve the living and true God. And number three, you wait for his son from heaven. When you have all three of those, then you have a firm foundation for your Christian life. But if you only have two, if you're not really waiting for his son from heaven, eventually the world's going to overtake you and you're going to be sucked into the world and you lose your testimony for Christ. And that's exactly what happened to all the mainline denominations. Uh, Pember says his history has shown. So that's the first fundamental problem with, uh, so to speak, with amillennialism. The second problem is it deprives Christians of a real understanding of what is God's commitment to the church today. And very simply, that commitment is to bring God's kingdom to the earth in a hidden, mysterious way. Jesus came to uh, to the earth 
and he offered the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. And they rejected him. Now, all the Jews at that time, they were expecting a physical kingdom of God on the earth because they believed at least some of the Old Testament prophecies, at least those prophecies they believed. They, they assumed that's, how, that's what the Messiah was going to come to do, was to establish God's kingdom on the earth. But they rejected the one who would, was going to do that. And they crucified him. So he had to leave the earth. But then he wanted the church to continue the work he had begun. In John chapter 20, he says, As the Father sent me, I send you. I send you. He wants, I want you to continue the work that I began. But now it's not going to be something outward, like it would have been if Israel had received him. It's something hidden. It's inward. It's mysterious. But the church today is bringing in the kingdom of God in a hidden, mysterious way so the Lord can come back and establish his kingdom through the nation of Israel on the earth in an open and manifested way. That's our role. That's our commitment from the Lord. That's our calling from the Lord, at least in a negative way. Because the kingdom of God is somewhat, the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God is somewhat negative. It deals with the opposition to God's authority so that in a positive way, God can have his building, his expression, his dwelling place on the earth. But at least in a sense, you can say God's commitment to the church today is to bring in his kingdom so that Israel can establish his kingdom on the earth in an open and manifest way when the Lord comes back. But if you take that hope away from Christians, then... You just have a sense, um, you're just drifting in your Christian life. You don't see what your Christian life is all about, what my calling is as a believer in Christ. And, and so many Christians today, I think largely, as a re, at least in part, as a result of this kind of false teaching of amillennialism, they, they think, well, I'm basically just waiting to go to heaven because there is no purpose for my life here on the earth. So amillennialism not only deprives Christians of the scriptures, it also deprives Christians of our hope and of our calling from the Lord. And as we go on, I'll develop these thoughts probably uh, in a more uh, in-depth way. But, uh, but that's why you really have to deal with this false teaching because it has such a negative and pernicious effect on Bible-believing Christians and you just hate to see that. So uh, we're doing our best now uh, to try to expose this teaching to, uh, and, and how false it is in the best way that we can. Now, I said something a minute ago that uh, kind of leads into the next point. And, you know, what I said was that uh, the, the church is bringing in God's kingdom today in a hidden and mysterious way. Because someone who is listening to this who's amillennial may say, wait a minute, so you say the kingdom of God is today because the dispensationalists say that the kingdom of God's in the future. So aren't you kind of agreeing with amillennialists there? Well, so as I've considered this, I've realized I, I better make something clear, which is some of what amillennialism teaches, it's not that it's completely false. The problem is it's not balanced. It's not balanced. Now, maybe some dispensationalists would say, no, there's no kingdom of God at all today. And that's, you know, that's not certainly the view I would take. Uh, and as I've, I've said before, I was very much, the one who taught me the Bible was Witness Lee, and that was certainly not his view. He strongly stressed, no, the, king, there's, the kingdom of God is with the church today in a hidden way. So you have to understand there's always two sides to, to biblical truth. And so you can say, like the amillennialists do, that uh, Christ is reigning in our hearts and that the kingdom of God is in our hearts. And that's true. It's not that that's false. I'm not saying any of that's false. But that does not mean that there's not also 
going to be a physical manifestation of the kingdom on the earth. Now, I don't agree at all that the millenniums today, I just, that's an absurd teaching if you look at the scripture. But it's right to say Christ is reigning in our hearts in a mysterious and hidden way. It, when the amillennialists may say that, I don't agree, disagree with that at all. That is true. That should be true. If it's not true, it should be true in our experience. But there's a big principle in the Bible that God's truth is always, always, always twofold in nature. And you have to see both sides of the truth in order to have a balanced view of the scripture. And the prime example of this is the Trinity. You have to see both sides. God is one, but he's also three. He's three, but he's also one. It's when you see both sides of that truth that you have a balanced view of the Trinity. But some people insist, no, God is only one. They're not balanced by the realization that God is also three. And some people, more or less, today seem to teach God is, they're tritheistic in their view of God. Maybe they wouldn't even realize it, but they basically separate the Father, Son, and Spirit so they don't, they don't see the side of the oneness of the divine trinity. That's also not balanced. And that's just one example. There's so many examples. So when you say today that Christ is reigning in the hearts of the believers, that does not discount the fact that he is also in the future going to come and establish his kingdom on the earth in a physical way. But the amillennialists only take the one side. They only take the, you know, so to speak, the hidden way, the hidden ruling of Christ. They don't take the side of his open manifested ruling, and that's not balanced. And that's part of the problem with their teaching. It's not the whole problem, but it's a big part of the problem. They don't have a balanced view of the Lord's reigning. And we should, uh, in our own study of the Bible, we should always keep this principle that to be balanced, we need to see both sides of God's divine truth. Otherwise, not just regarding the prophecy, but in so many ways, we'll, be, uh, we'll fall into error either on one side or on the other. That's a very, very important uh, point to keep in mind in terms of how we come to the scripture as believers. Now, I thought to um, get into the matter of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, in this next segment. And, and as I say, I record this program in segments and then and put it together. Uh, but when I recorded that segment, I just felt that's too important a topic. Uh, that that also needs to be a program all on its own because it's such a crucial uh, portion of prophecy in the Bible. So, so that's going to be a program all by itself instead of being a part of this program. Maybe, maybe that will be the next program or maybe Revelation 20 will still be the next program. We'll, I'll just have to see how I, how I feel uh, led in that regard. Um, but in the remainder of this program, I want to come back to uh, one of the points we covered in the last program, which has to do with the origins of amillennialism. And what I said in that last program was that uh, you have to understand the early church, the, the primitive church, was premillennial in its understanding of the Lord's return. They expected the Lord to come before the millennium and establish a physical kingdom on the earth that involved the nation of Israel. That's called Kiliasm at that time because that uh, Kiliasm relates to the Greek word for 1,000. Millennial relates to the Latin word for 1,000. So the premillennial view of the early church was called Kiliasm. Uh, and that dominated the church for the first couple of centuries. Uh, but after that, as we said in the last program, for a couple reasons, uh, it eventually uh, was replaced with the amillennial view. And 
one uh, factor for that had to do with the worldliness of the church. It became embedded in the world instead of being a testimony unto the Lord that was separate from the world. And when that happened, it had to give up the premillennial view. It had to take the amillennial view uh, because that put so much distance between the believer and the Lord's return. And if you're living in the world, you can't have that instant hope of the Lord's return. So that was a major factor for the adoption. And we read some quotes last week uh, regarding that. That was a major factor for the adoption by the church around 400 AD of the amillennial view through the teaching of Augustine. But prior to that, there was another factor uh, that tended to uh, reduce the influence of the premillennial view in the early church. And that was the fact that pagan Greek philosophy was beginning to really exert an influence in the early church. And according to the Greeks, uh, anything that's physical is bad and negative, according to, to Greek philosophy, from the, thing, the, the statements that I read. And therefore, they could not agree that God wanted to establish uh, a physical kingdom on the earth. And that influence, when that influence spread in the church, then uh, it began to weaken the premillennial view of the early believers and of the early uh, church fathers. That is a pagan view. That's not the biblical view at all. You know, when you look at God created the physical world in Genesis chapter 1, and at the end of the seven days of creation, the six days of creation, and he says, Behold, God saw everything he had created, and behold, it was very good. It was not bad. The material realm was not bad, including man. That was part of what was very good. And in fact, when you look at exactly how God created man in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 7, the first thing that was uh, created was man's body. Man's body was not an afterthought. That was the very first thing. Man, God formed man from the dust of the ground. That's his physical body. So the physical, in, in the biblical view, the physical is not, not inherently evil. That's a pagan view. It's a Gnostic view, and it, it really should not uh, influence our thinking at all. Now, of course, it's true. In, in the physical realm, that's where you have sin operating. Well, you have sin operating in the spiritual realm today, too, unspeakably uh, evil spiritual forces working in the spiritual realm. So you can't distinguish uh, good and evil that way. Um, and, and God certainly does not uh, feel that the physical realm is inherently evil. But that was the view of this pagan Greek philosophy that was uh, infiltrating the church and turning the believers away from the biblical thought, the pure biblical thought, the pure thought of the Bible to some other source, and that weakened the premillennial view of the early Christians. So I came across another article this week that really uh, strengthened my understanding in this regard, and I wanted to read some excerpts from that. This is from the website Israel My Glory, and I'll, I'll link to it in, uh, in the notes uh, for the podcast. You know, I have to say, I've always suspected that amillennialism was more of a philosophy than it was a theology because it's just, it's just not in the Bible. I mean, you have to reject so much of the Bible to take the amillennial view and just write it off. Uh, and and as, as I've seen this more, now I understand why this is. I never understood why, but I suspected it was the case. But now I kind of understand why. And I think as I go along and read this, uh, read these excerpts, I think you'll, you'll appreciate that more too. 
So I'm just going to uh, read some excerpts from the article and, uh, and make some comments along the way. It's talking here about the early church father Origen, who uh, was very much influenced by this pagan Greek philosophy. It says, uh, Origen and his associates were intensely interested in pagan Greek philosophy. They examined it extensively. Origen studied under the, quote, the heathen, and I'm not sure how to say this, Ammonius Sacchus, I suppose, the celebrated founder of Neoplatonism. He and other Alexandrian church scholars tried to integrate Greek philosophy with Christian doctrine. They tried to integrate Greek philosophy with Christian doctrine. So their authority was not the scriptures. I mean, the, the Reformation, uh, the Reformed teachers are very big on this, sola scriptura, uh, and, but their teaching is amillennial and their, their amillennial teaching is not sola scriptura. It's uh, scriptura plus pagan theology, pagan philosophy, I should say. Uh, this attempted integration played a significant role in the development of the new Alexandrian theology. Much of Greek philosophy advocated that anything which is physical or material is inherently evil and only the totally spiritual or non-physical is good. And as I said, that is not the biblical view. That's against the biblical view. And yet it very much influenced uh, these uh, early church fathers and shaped their view of uh, their eschatological views. Through this influence, the Alexandrian scholars developed the idea that an earthly political kingdom with physical blessings would be an evil thing, and that only a totally spiritual, non-physical kingdom would be good. That idea prompted Alexandrian theology to reject the premillennial belief in an earthly political kingdom of God with physical blessings. Now, at this point, the amillennial teaching hasn't been developed, but they've rejected the premillennial view because it did not uh, comport with pagan Greek philosophy. Not because it wasn't biblical, but because of the influence of the pagan Greek philosophy. That's why they discarded the premillennial view of the Lord's return. Now, this is, this is in the Greek church. Um, to be clear, this is, later on the article goes on and deals with the, uh, with the, the Latin church. Uh, but right now it's talking about this happened earlier in the Greek church than it did in the Latin church. Um, the article goes on, around 260 A.D., uh, Nepos, an Egyptian church bishop, tried to overthrow uh, Origen's theology and vindicate Kiliasm, basically by, by teaching the Bible. Uh, but he was defeated, it says, by uh, Dionysus, who had been trained by Origen. Origen. Um, during this controversy, Dionysus became convinced that the victory of mystical theology over Jewish Kiliasm, Jewish there is in quotes, and I'm assuming that's what he claimed it was, uh, the Jewish view of the end times, would never be secure so long as the apocalypse of John passed for an apostolic writing and kept its place among the canon. He accordingly raised the question of the apostolic origin of the apocalypse, and uh, by reviving old difficulties with ingenious arguments of his own, he carried the point. So, in other words, he convinced many people that revelation did not belong in the scriptures. And the reason why he did that was because as long as you accepted the book of Revelation as part of the canon, you could not reject the premillennial view of the Lord's return. You know, I said earlier in the program, these, these people were honest about it. At least they were honest. And they said, we, we outright reject the book of Revelation. The amillennialists today aren't honest. They reject it. 
but they don't, they're not open about their rejecting of it. They say we, we spiritualize it. Uh, it doesn't really mean what it says it means. It's all uh, uh, symbolic, so you can't really take it. They're still rejecting the book of Revelation. They still will not accept all that the prophets have spoken. But they're not honest about what they're doing. Uh, but here we see the real origins of this. This guy admitted that if you want to reject the premillennial view of the Lord's return, you have to get rid of the book of Revelation. Well, you have to get rid of it one way or another. They got rid of it outright. Today, uh, the amillennialists get rid of it by saying, well, it's just a bunch of symbols. We should never take that way. We should never treat the scriptures in this way. Uh, again, you, know, you can see why this is really so much more of a philosophy than it is a theology. It's forcing a, a pagan view of the end times on the scriptures. And it's just rejecting those scriptures that don't fit with that view. It's really so, just so evil. And because it pretends to be something it's not, that's what makes it especially evil. I mean, it's one thing, okay, if you want to teach pagan philosophy, that's your business. Uh, but if you want to do that under the guise of teaching the Bible, then that becomes very, very serious as far as the Lord's concerned. Very, very serious. And, uh, you know, we'll all render an account to the Lord in that day for how we... Uh, taught and how we rendered ourselves. We all need his mercy, but we have to be warned to treat the Bible in this way is very, very, very serious. It goes on, uh, Dionysus so prejudiced the Greek church against the book of Revelation uh, that during the 4th century, the church, they're talking about the Greek church, removed it from its canon of scripture. He convinced them, we'll get rid of the book of Revelation. It's not a part of the scripture because it doesn't fit with how we want to view the end times. So, so, so much for that. There goes the book of Revelation. And it goes on. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the, the Greek church restored the book to the canon, to his canon in the late Middle Ages. But by that time, the damage to the premillennial view could not be remedied. So they just got rid of the book of Revelation outright. And they said, we don't want that to be a part of the scripture. So that's the Greek church in terms of how it rejected the premillennial view of the Lord's return. In the West, it didn't happen until later. Uh, and in the West, I think, was where you had this amillennial view really developed through the influence of uh, Augustine. And again, this article goes on, and it gives a few reasons for uh, why he uh, eventually uh, changed his view. He was premillennial uh, early on, and then later on, he became amillennial. And there's a few reasons it gives for that. Uh, but it... But it one factor was also this influence of this pagan Greek philosophy. So the article goes on here. Uh, the third factor in Augustine's change of view was the influence of Greek philosophy upon his thinking. Before his conversion, Augustine was deeply immersed in the study of this philosophy, much of which asserted the inherent evil of the physical and material and the inherent good, goodness of the totally spiritual. This philosophy continued to leave its mark upon him even after his conversion. This also prompted him to reject as carnal the premillennial idea of an earthly political kingdom of God with great material blessings. To his way of thinking, in order for the kingdom of God to be good, it must be spiritual in nature. Thus, for him, the millennium had become a spiritual state into which the church collectively had entered at Pentecost, in which the individual Christian might already enjoy, which the individual Christian might already enjoy through mystical communion with God. So again, you see this, this evil influence of pagan philosophy. It's not because of biblical uh, authorities. It's because the biblical authority was weakened by the acceptance and the 
appreciation of the pagan Greek philosophy, and that's true until today. Um, you always have these uh, extra-biblical authorities that are trying, trying in one way or another to undermine the authority of the Scripture. But if our authority is the Bible, if we really look to the Bible as our unique authority, then we'll be clear about all these matters. And yes, our view of the end times will be what the Bible says it is, which is Christ is coming to establish his kingdom prior to the millennium. And then there's going to be a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth with the nation of Israel uh, before the, the final rebellion of Satan. And then we'll enter into the eternal state. Praise the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we need to accept. Uh, and what we will accept when we take the Bible as our unique authority for understanding biblical prophecy. Praise the Lord. So that's going to do it for this edition of the program. Uh, and so as I said, I'm not sure the next program, whether we'll get into Daniel uh, chapter 9 or Revelation 20 or, or vice versa. We'll just see um, how we feel led in that regard. But until then, may the Lord keep you in his way and in his grace for his sake and his glory. Amen. You've been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify.